Money FM 89.3, best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. I'm Michelle Martin. The first quarter of the year is one most companies would like to forget. But while the U.S. market has suffered its worst quarterly loss on record, there are two high-profile companies that finished the quarter in the black, one just barely, the other with a 5% gain. The first company is Microsoft. It's actually the only component of the Dow Jones Industrial Average that did not finish the quarter lower than where it started. That said, it rose just 1%. One U.S. cent. The other company is Amazon. More people are ordering online, so perhaps not surprising that Amazon's share price is holding up. Arun Pai joining me live right now for Money and Me. He's Chief Strategy Officer at AsiaCollect.ai. Good morning, Arun. How are you? Good morning, Michelle. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Let's start with Amazon, Arun. It's currently trading at a thousand nine hundred and seven US dollars. Last on share price down two point one six percent. Would you buy it at these levels? So Amazon has obviously had a phenomenal run in the past uh, five to ten years, right? Like. Uh, in the beginning, its business model was being called into question whether they're burning too much cash. Uh, the fact that it had never made a quarterly earnings uh, profit for the first like 10 to 15 years of it being public. Mm. Obviously, all of that has gone completely into the backdrop in the past uh, couple of years, especially with uh, AWS or Amazon Web Services, uh, basically dominating the whole cloud computing space, which involves various SMEs, MNCs, etc., uh, not managing their own data servers, but uh, letting Amazon manage it for you. Given the times that we're in right now in uh, these uh, the COVID pandemic times, Amazon has obviously done a phenomenal job and is essential for uh, the U.S. and for that matter, like many other parts of the world to survive because they've managed to keep their supply chains relatively intact and they're able to deliver all of these essential goods to various households who might be under a lockdown. Is the share, uh, so that's in terms of the business model. In mm-hmm. terms of the share price itself, is it uh, reasonably attractive? I think it's definitely getting there. Uh, I think uh, there were certain points of time last week where the share price would have been scooped up for a little, for, a, you know, obviously at a slightly more attractive price. Mm-hmm. But I personally am definitely uh, interested in like buying or at least keeping some percentage of my portfolio in Amazon as and when the correction potentially keeps happening over the next, uh, you know, month or two months. I have a follow-up question for you here about Amazon, Arun. A practical question. 1950 US dollars is a lot of money. It's nearly 2800 Singapore dollars. If a retail investor doesn't want to spend that much money per share, are there any other avenues to buy into Amazon's growth story through an ETF maybe or another vehicle? Oh, that's an excellent question, Michelle. Like for most investors who might not want, who want to take a much more diversified approach to investing, which is definitely the right thing to do, uh, 2000 US dollars for one share can become a bit expensive. So you have a number of ETFs or exchange traded funds that will be available through your uh, broker account. Uh, obviously, S&P 500, uh, which is the overall index of the largest 500 uh, companies in the US in terms of market capitalization, 
is one such option. But if you want to take a more uh, targeted approach, there are a number of other ETFs, especially in the consumer discretionary space, uh, created by uh, your managed uh, financial institutions like State Street, Vanguard, and Fidelity that have come up with very specialized consumer discretionary ETFs in which the uh, proportion of Amazon uh, stock uh, within that ETF is anywhere from like 20 to 30%. So you can easily get uh, exposure to Amazon through these ETFs in a much uh, cheaper, quote-unquote, uh, manner. That's great to hear. Arun, let's turn to Microsoft now. The software giant is at the center of a race to bring resources to workers who are stuck at home. Its Azure cloud computing service is seeing an eightfold increase in usage. More and more people are using MS Teams these days, although Microsoft rival Zoom is even more popular. So Arun, do you think Microsoft is well positioned to thrive once this COVID-19 crisis is finally over? Right. I think Zoom and Teams, uh, as you highlighted, both have done a phenomenal job. And uh, the growth rates have been spectacular, especially during these working from home times. Uh, While I personally use uh, both softwares, uh, you know, obviously Zoom has a massive advantage because it's a lot more, uh, it's newer in a way. It has a much more sleek, fancier uh, user experience. But Teams has a massive uh, edge also because it's, kind of like wrapped into the entire Microsoft ecosystem. So if you think of, you know, any large company that uses, say, Outlook, it uses like Azure, then teams can easily be plugged into that ecosystem and it can suddenly ramp up, like it can suddenly scale up to like millions of users, which it successfully has. Satya Nadella has done a fantastic job of running Microsoft, uh, especially over the past like five years. Because, uh, you know, this used to be a company that was basically the dud of uh, the technology space. It was classified as a boring company. And now, uh, you know, it's come up with fantastic hardware products. They made a massive push into the cloud computing software, like I touched about with Amazon. Mm -hmm. Even though Amazon has a much, uh, you know, a a much bigger head start than uh, Microsoft, uh, they're definitely a very strong contender for number two. And on the back of that, and this working from home aspect where companies are trying to ensure that not only can the employees work from home, but, you know, the data is available uh, from the cloud rather than a local server, Microsoft definitely uh, has an edge over its competitors in the enterprise space. Yeah, I can't remember my life before Zoom. What do you think of online service providers like Zoom and Slack, and do you see value in their shares? Do I see value in the company? Yes, I think it's important because I've been working from home in the last 10 days. I like the way you added uh, in terms of the shares. I personally don't. Uh, I think the multiples uh, that the companies are trading, especially like Zoom and Slack, are, uh, are priced to an absolute perfection that they will suddenly be able to convert a lot of these free users. And don't take me wrong, like, you know, of those millions of users, mm-hmm. a large portion of them are free users. Will they be able to convert them into paid subscribers? Will they be able to figure out any other subscription model uh, that can actually generate uh, substantial amounts of money? I'm not so sure. Uh, The theme of working from home uh, and generally the cloud computing space, you know, as we talked about a little bit earlier, Amazon and Microsoft have much more diversified revenue streams, which can potentially let them survive in the long run as compared to a pure one-off product software 
which they're doing phenomenally well. It's just very, very expensive for a typical value investor. He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at AsiaCollect.ai, and this is Money and Mean. Speaking of apps, I've heard a lot about House Party. They're a face-to-face social networking app that's become a sensation, a huge surge in downloads in weeks from 130,000 a week in February to more than 2 million a week in March. So House Party is an app and it monetizes video chats without ads. Arun, how do you think House Party, the company, has been doing? Do you see value in it? <laughs> to be honest, I just heard about House Party like last week, thanks to my much more social media savvy wife. Uh. I I did play it uh, once, uh, for whatever it's worth, and it's an interesting concept, right? Uh, they've obviously caught on to this trend of everyone working from home or like staying at home, not knowing what to do on Friday nights, Saturday nights, and yet trying to connect people in a very, honestly, in a very sleek and uh, smooth manner uh, in terms of user experience. Now, coming to uh, the company itself, right? Like, so this is owned, this is a company that's owned by Epic Games. Epic Games is a $15 billion company that uh, also owns uh, Fortnite, which is, uh, you know, it's it's this really uh, crazy game that basically a lot of uh, millennials have downloaded over the past uh, six to nine months. Now, the issue, though, is uh, there's been this massive smear campaign the last couple of days where rumors started that uh, if you download House Party and uh, it has access to your phone and your other apps and your other apps are now being hacked. Now, this started out with uh, just a tweet. Uh, The tweet has now been blocked uh, or, well, it's been deleted, sorry. Mm -hmm. But that has obviously gone completely viral. Now, Epic is claiming that this is a massive smear campaign against them, and they've given a reward for $1 million to anyone who can actually prove that other accounts have been hacked. So it's a very interesting space where you're seeing, uh, you know, games or apps going viral overnight, but then potentially the dark side of capitalism where you have competitors coming into the space potentially trying to do this massive smear campaign against them. Obviously, as users, uh, you know, try to not use the same password for multiple apps. Mm. Definitely for any financial institution app, you know, implement the two-factor authorization model Mm. to try and keep your phone and your accounts and generally life safe. And thank you also for introducing me to Fortnite. I did not know that there was a game like that out there. Uh, We could do a whole show on why is it that multiplayer online shooter games are so popular, especially with kids. But we won't go there. Don't worry. (laughs) <laughs> thank you thank you for that <laughs> not this show I could hear the intake of air and the gasp oh boy okay let's step back for the big macro picture so Trump seems to be addressing the nation on a daily basis do you think there's any impact on the markets with uh, Trump's daily addresses? is this helping things or hindering things right so that was uh, interesting I think uh, you know if you go back to like about two weeks to a month back uh, he was literally being the cheerleader for the country, maybe not necessarily the president of the country, where he was spinning a very optimistic picture I th- and, you know, leading the markets to potentially not exactly know which direction to go in. I think the last couple of days, though, uh, I have personally seen uh, quite a massive shift uh, because of two factors. Uh, one is a couple of days back, he took a much more 
somber tone saying that the U.S. is going to be in for a very, very difficult two weeks and that people should, like, hunker down. And then yesterday, uh, while he's been taking a a very aggressive uh, tone against China, uh, yesterday he came out basically saying that, you know, uh, President Xi is a very close and trusted friend of mine, and uh, we are still ensuring that the trade deal that they signed a couple of months back is still in place and that China will still buy billions of dollars worth of agricultural goods. Then he was pressed a little bit further about, you know, other numbers of the COVID cases uh, coming out from China. Is that correct or not? And he just politely replied back saying, I'm not an accountant from China. I do not know. Uh, You know, I I will leave that to them to figure out. Uh, We just need to ensure that our relationship with China, at least for the purposes of the first part of the trade deal that was signed, is kept intact. And funnily enough, that was very similar to the tone that uh, our Prime Minister, Lee Sien Lung, took in an interview a couple of days back with CNN, where he said, you have the two largest uh, economic uh, powers in the world. We need The world needs them to be working together rather than against each other to ensure that uh, all of us, humanity as a whole, can come out of this relatively uh, unscathed. And so hopefully, you know, I think uh, for the first time, uh, at least in terms of the news conferences in the past, like two to three weeks, mm-hmm. uh, there seems to be a lot more of a conciliatory tone. And hopefully if that can continue. We can try and get our, you know, get ahead of this uh, COVID pandemic and uh, go back to uh, life as usual. Hopefully, hopefully. Also, given further correction we've seen in the last couple of days, are there any sectors that you're looking at that seem attractive right now, Arun? Uh, so it's interesting what's happening in the oil space. And I know we've touched about that a little bit, uh, you know, a bunch of times in the past couple of weeks where you had uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia having a massive feud and Saudi Arabia basically claiming they will pump out a lot more oil than what's required, uh, thereby leading to a massive uh, supply gut. Now, uh, this was right, you know, right around the time when uh, COVID was maybe not so serious or the impact was potentially not going to be so serious in the markets. But now what we've seen in the past two weeks, at least, is that there's going to be a massive demand drop because, you know, most airlines are halted, uh, transportation is not taking place, all of us are working from home, mm-hmm. etc. So you have this case where the world typically burns uh, close to like 100 million uh, barrels per day mm-hmm. of oil. That number is expected to drop to something in, in the worst case estimates close to like 70 million oh. to potentially like 85 million. Now, that is a massive drop of, let's approximate, say, 20, 25 million barrels per day, a demand drop. On the other hand, you have Saudi Arabia, and because of Saudi, you have uh, Russia and the other OPEC companies sitting and uh, producing a lot more oil uh, from their shores. So there's a massive supply gut, there's a uh, massive uh, demand drop. Where does all that oil go? And, you know, obviously it's first stored in various storage tankers across the globe. Uh, The U.S. has a uh, massive container, so does China. But the problem is that all of these, all these landfills will literally get filled up anywhere in the next 15 to 20 days. And, you know, based on any expectation and any medical expert's expectation, this COVID crisis is definitely going to stay for anywhere from like two to three months going forward. So once all this oil gets filled up in the next 15 to 20 days uh, in the land, where does all this oil go? Mm. And the only answer to that are oil tankers. 
So now there's been this massive tailwind for oil tankers where because A, Saudi Arabia has rented a whole bunch of VLCCs, which are your largest ships that can try and uh, hold oil or transport oil, which is close to something like 2 million uh, barrels. And on the other hand, you also have this issue where uh, you can't store oil on land. You have to store oil somewhere. So you have these companies like Glencore, Vitol, uh, these large uh, commodity companies that are basically renting these tankers purely to store them, taking advantage of this thing called a contango in oil, which basically means uh, the price of oil today is much lower than the price of oil in six months to a year's time. And that's purely because the hope is that the world will uh, look very differently from what it is right now. Demand for oil will increase, thereby the price for oil will increase in the future. So um, the one industry uh, that I'm seeing uh, a lot of interest in is in the tanker space. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of publicly traded stocks in that uh, space, like Euronav, uh, North American Tanker. Uh, You have uh, TNK, uh, a whole bunch of them that were trading at fractions of their book value because these are companies that were heavily in debt. But I think given these massive tailwinds uh, where they can literally clean out their debt and potentially earn, uh, you know, up to half of their market cap, if prices for them renting out their oil tankers stay at this range for the next three to five months, we can potentially see a lot more price appreciation in that space. Great insight for our tribe of investors there. What an oil patch we're in. Traders bracing then for those um, tankers to fill. And even as feuding Vladimir Putin and Mohammed bin Salman go at it, I've seen, interestingly enough, Russia's central bank has already um, the need to adjust its policy because of the lack of petrol dollars per barrel. So they've stopped buying gold in the open markets. They had to sell about 16 billion rubles of foreign exchange to settle by March 31st. And I want to speak a little bit about central banks. Um, let's, t- let's turn to local banking counters. The Monetary Authority of Singapore has announced that homeowners and small businesses suffering as a result of the COVID-19 crisis will be able to defer payments on their debts until the end of the year. This is bound to be welcome news for many listeners. I'm not so sure that the heads of DBS, UOB, OCBC are feeling the same way. On the one hand, they should be relieved <laughs> because they are likely to be fewer defaults, but then again, won't this hurt their cash flow and profits? It most definitely will. And we could immediately see that uh, if you looked at the share prices of uh, HSBC and Standard Chartered yesterday, the uh, London regulator basically suggested to them to please uh, cancel your dividends and stop your buybacks. And what do you know? A bank has to follow suit of whatever your central bank tells you. They immediately stopped all of those activities and their share prices cratered by 10% Uh, yesterday. Now, coming to uh, banks in general, especially like local banks, uh, I definitely feel, at least the US and Singapore banks, uh, their balance sheets are ironclad. Mm -hmm. That being said, if this pandemic continues, and it's a prudent thing to do to potentially stop or at least substantially reduce your dividends, we also saw that DBS has stopped at buybacks. Uh, It's a prudent thing to do, especially to try and gain some good karma after the mess that banks put us in in 2008. I I apologize, I should not say they put us in, but at least we're the primary responsible candidate for the mess that happened in 2008. Mm. This is their time to ensure that rather than cash going back to their investors in the short run, 
they can try and help businesses and consumers who are desperately strapped for cash uh, presently to try and gain a lot more brownie points for their consumers and the central bank so that in the long run, their share price can appreciate a lot more. Obviously, it hurts as an investor, and I'm an investor of DBS. It obviously will hurt if, you know, it already hurts potentially when they've stopped, to, when they've decided to not go ahead with buybacks mm. and potentially even lower their dividends. But there sadly just is no choice for banks where the need for credit and capital for the real business for Main Street right now supersedes the requirements for investors. And, you know, Goldman Sachs came up with this uh, big report the other day where dividends in the S&P are going to be slashed by uh, 25% for this year. And that honestly might be on the low side. You have any company in the U.S. that's taking any form of government assistance will not be able to do buybacks nor issue any dividends for over for up to a year after having paid back the government loans. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, we need to assist companies. Uh, banks, banks and governments both need to assist companies as much as possible during these trying times. Uh, it's not necessarily a time where you just, you know, try and pass out cash to the investors, even if that's a possibility, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully this, it's not like a run in the bank situation. You have regulators coming out saying, look, uh, this is not about uh, us being concerned or scared about the strength of balance sheets of banks. This is just about a better use for capital for Main Street. Absolutely. That's, you know, interesting you bring that up because that's one of our lead stories today. Bank dividends under pressure all started with Europe's banking regulator demanding that all EU lenders stop their planned dividend payments and share buybacks. New Zealand announcing a similar measure this morning. Do you, can, can we expect more regulators to follow suit in your opinion? Most definitely. I mean, the amount capital required for businesses when they are top line This is not like a 20-30% contraction in profit. This is your top line, your revenue, basically going close to zero. And when stuff like that happens, you need massive amounts of credit for the next two months to ensure that the entire world doesn't go into a downward spiral. And hence it's required. And it was an interesting thing that you brought up slightly earlier about the sovereign wealth funds. I think that might be a massive selling pressure on the markets also, where you already have the Russian uh, sovereign wealth fund doing that. The Norwegian fund came out with the same thing also, where, uh, you know, cash is required. These are all these are all resource rich countries that have been making a massive profit the past five or 10 years on the back of selling these natural resources. Mm-hmm. And now the price of natural resources have crashed, especially oil, natural gas, etc. They need to come up with money to pump in back into their main street economy. Where do they get that from? By, you know, liquidating their sovereign wealth fund and sovereign wealth funds hold a bunch of equities and bonds. So, you know, it's potentially interesting to look out in the next couple of days or weeks ahead. So I know this matters to investors. So very briefly, our own DBS and UOB shares are down about 30% since the beginning of the year. OCBC faring a bit better, but still down about 23%. What do you think of banks at these levels? Even if they're not ready to rally, do you think banking shares might at least stabilize at these prices? Uh, and to be honest, I have no idea whether they will stabilize or not in the near term. Uh, and current like headline dividends, at least for a stock like DBS uh, that I'm invested in, is over 5% currently. Mm-hmm. Can that easily drop and that be slashed by over half? Highly possible. Uh, at prices right now, uh, I do feel that on a risk-reward basis, it, def- it makes sense, at least to me, uh, to start scaling into these names as well as U.S. bank names. 
should this be your entire position right now? I think it's way too early to tell, not knowing how this pandemic will sadly or eventually turn out to be. Mm-hmm. But uh, at these prices, at these cheap, relatively cheap price to earnings, lower, uh, you know, at very attractive price to book values, uh, it definitely makes sense to start scaling into these loans. All right. And finally, this past week, the government here in Singapore has rolled out a $48 billion stimulus package to support workers and businesses and the self-employed. This against the backdrop of economic contraction of more than 10% quarter on quarter. Given what you've seen in this supplementary budget, not to mention the massive sell-off over the past five weeks, are there sectors you'd invest in now where you see good value? I think uh, we've seen a massive unwind uh, in any uh, in, in, in any a sector which had funds that were basically leveraged. So you see in, in spe- sectors like MLP uh, or master partnerships, you're seeing sectors like REITs or real estate funds where you have a lot of funds and a lot of investors who leverage themselves to take advantage of the erstwhile high headline dividend. We've seen massive corrections in that space, but just because you've seen a massive correction in the price uh, there I say it doesn't mean that there is value in those spaces already. Because at the end of the day, if you're having massive bankruptcies in the retail space, uh, you need to be very careful because all of these, you know, there can be a trickle-down effect where uh, your initial retail shop goes bankrupt. Uh, that leads to employment uh, rates, uh, unemployment rates obviously going higher. Uh, no other company willing to set up shop in that retail shop uh, because people are unemployed, they stop going to malls and stop spending a lot more money. And then you will eventually see REITs in, uh, the, in, the, in, the, you know, uh, in the shopping side definitely affected. I think uh, because of this massive unwind, we are definitely seeing, uh, or at least I'm seeing value in the commercial REIT space. But you've got to be very careful as to who the landlord is. And mm-hmm. if it's government entities, then uh, well and good. Mm-hmm. You can start scaling up into those names. Uh, So so that is definitely one sector that I'm looking at currently. Fantastic insights for our investors. Arun, thank you and have a wonderful day. Thank you, Michelle. You too. Arun Pai is Chief Strategy Officer at AsiaCollect.ai. Before acting on the information on MoneyFM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.